you're listening to Software Unscripted. I'm your host, Richard Feldman. Today I'm talking with Nikita Prokopov, an open source closure developer and creator of the Fura Code typeface. We started out talking about an article he wrote five years ago about software disenchantment and get into some of the strategies he's developed for actually addressing that sense of disenchantment. We also get into potential explanations for why software gets built the way it does today, how advice and best practices spread in the programming world, for better or for worse, and some ideas about how we could improve things. And now, Escaping Software Disenchantment. All right, Nikita, thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me. Nice to be here. Five years ago, you wrote this blog post that I just saw getting shared around again. And it's something that really resonated with me about software disenchantment. You kind of talked about how Windows update takes 30 minutes. And in that time, you could format your entire hard drive and like reinstall a fresh image from scratch multiple times. All these things that seem like they're either getting worse about software or are not really noticeably getting better at the rate you might expect, given how fast the hardware is getting, among other things, and how many more people are, are working on software and so forth. And so one of the things I was curious about is, do you feel that much has changed? Or, or to what extent do you think things have changed in the five years since you wrote that? It's a good question. I feel, well, the thing that I wrote was my personal feelings. Like I personally felt not happy with the way software is going. And by the act of writing it, I actually realized what's going on with me and started looking for solutions, starting moving into directions that are more deliberate. So I started paying more attention. So I realized that I can create basically my own world, my own bubble, where like things are not as bad as it seems. So I tell about the whole world. It's probably going in the same direction, more or less, like <laughs> getting bigger and power and so on. Electrons still exist and everybody likes it. Now there's no alternative, more or less. But also, I think, uh, I don't remember how the situation was with Rust, for example, five years ago. But it feels like the rise of Rust, for example, and rewrite everything in Rust is like this movement that by people kind of pay attention to speed and performance, maybe for the wrong reasons, but still, it's a good <laughs> <laughs> kind of fashionable kind of, I guess, but still, it's nice to have it, right? And yeah, that thing definitely is great. But other than that, I don't know, like phones getting bigger, notebooks getting bigger, laptops. Oh, yeah, I can't stand that. My number one thing with the phone is I'm like, I just want a small phone. I don't need the screen to be gigantic. I, like, I yeah. have to hold this in my hand. I want to hold it one-handed. And that's like the iPhone SE is like the only thing on the market these days that <laughs> that seems yeah. to be at all interested in physical size. I upgrade not that often, like every maybe five years-ish, like basically when the phone actually stops working, yeah, break it or something. And yeah, it's, it used to be like every time I upgrade, by that time, I run out of space. So basically like photos became <laughs> too large and apps getting too large. So I physically run out of space. That were like the, not the best, but maybe most optimal offering like five years ago, like average option, right? If I bought maybe like two terabytes phone, it would still be okay. But I bought average and now it's like 64 is too little. And I probably, uh, I don't know what, what I mean, two, 265 probably. That kept happening like every five years or so. So yeah, that's what's going on. Yeah. 
Okay, so I'm curious about this bubble that you mentioned. You sort of created for yourself a little world where this is less true, at least. Like, what are some of the things that you have done differently in the bubble? Yes, well, the main realization for me was that I can write my own software the way I like, and it could be as fast as I want and kind of like that. So I don't have to use like modern UI framework for JavaScript, for example, to build my website or something. Yeah, I also started working on UI framework that is supposed to be an alternative to Electron. Hmm. It's like JVM based, no browser involved at all. Yeah, and, and rendering done via Skia. So it's like, it should be fast. It's like not the best possible. So like I'm kind of, there's a balance of what I like, which is closure and JVM and what is good for performance. Still, it's still much better than Electron. So yeah, I'm working on that as well, which gives me some peace of mind, I guess. Yeah, I definitely appreciate there's a little bit of an innate trade-off there that's like unfortunately unavoidable, but I have a sense that there's some sort of 80-20 rule in play here, which is like there's a desire, at least for me as an application developer, to have a certain level of ergonomics that I like. And there's also performance, which I also want. Like I want the end thing to run fast, but I also want the ergonomics that I want. And oftentimes these are intentioned to some degree, like you increase ergonomics and then at the cost of performance. So the really obvious example of this is just garbage collection in general. If you manage your own memory, you can make stuff go faster, but the ergonomics of garbage collection are just nicer. So then the question becomes like, where do you draw that line? And I think Electron's a good example of something that it sounds like you and I agree, or like we're not fans of Electron as as a concept. It's very, I had an earlier episode where it's not out yet, but we were talking about how you documentify and then undocumentify everything. It's like uh-huh. you turn, like in order to use Electron, you take something that is an application that has no desire to be a document, then you turn it into an HTML document so you can have a document object model, the DOM, and then you work on that in order to get back out and try to make the document object model work on something that's more of an application than a document. And that's like the most popular. <laughs> There was a joke on Twitter at some point. So, like, somebody was teaching uh, React to his uh, child, I guess, like six year old or something, nine year olds, maybe. And the joke goes like, he asks back, wait, can you explain it again? So, you write HTML, like in JSX syntax, so it's converted to JavaScript only to be converted back to HTML. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, there's all this jumping through hoops and then you jump back through the original hoop, but like in a slightly different way. And so, you know, like somebody who's looking at your approach might say, well, I can be even faster if I just use C++ and I don't use JVM at all, or if I just use Rust or something like that. But then again, there's this ergonomics question. I would like to see the world move in a direction of trying to answer this question with something other than adding more layers and just trying to figure out how can we get the ergonomics that we want while being really mindful of the performance consequences of that. Mm-hmm. And yeah. that seems like a question that's not being asked as much as I would like it to be these days. It seems like, like you said, there's a lot of, we'll just rewrite it in Rust. But what if those aren't the ergonomics you run? I, I mean, I like Rust, but there's plenty of ergonomics downsides to it. Yeah, I, I think like one of my opinions also is that I think the the, the situation we're in basically is partially happening because we care about developers too much like we we care about developers comfort developer experience whilst we should be talking probably about uh, the end product properties like we should be discussing like how fast 
the end product will be instead of how satisfied the developer will be. And I guess because uh, there is like high demand for developers right now and like they basically can be very picky and choose what technologies they want and whatever. And hardware also carries us a long way. So yeah, they can be very uncareful about all that. And there is no economic incentive to like to push back. Basically, like nothing happens. So yeah, they can, can be as careless as they can be. And yeah, that works for now for them. Now, you know what's really interesting about that is, so Casey Muratori wrote this really cool article recently. The name escapes me off the top of my head, but he was kind of talking about, uh, it was like something about like performance myths debunked. And one of the myths was, like had to do with, oh, this is going to be like a cost savings measure because caring about performance is like takes extra time and you have to train people and a lot of people don't know how to do it and yada yada. And so you need to use these alternative ways of making software that yes, they run slower, but they increase productivity. And he basically just went through this laundry list of like public announcements from big companies. And he's like, we're going to do one for Twitter. And here's one for Uber. And here's one for Facebook. And basically just talking about how they had to take some major part of their software and rewrite the whole thing to make the performance better because the business needed the performance to be better than what it was. And so I think you make a good point about you know, there's an economic factor here. But I think in a lot of t- cases, it's companies either intentionally or more likely unintentionally choosing the economic short term over the economic long term, where they're like, well, we're not going to have to rewrite this. It's going to be fine. Let's just do it in, you know, whatever technology. And then later on, it turns out, oh, actually, no, it wasn't fine. And users are not happy and they're leaving or whatever the case may be. And so they end up needing to do a, a full rewrite. And that seems like the type of thing where, you know, I guess they end up course correcting eventually. (laughs) But a lot of people who are looking to larger companies for cues, which maybe is not something they should do anyway, you know, they're seeing like, oh, let's use technology A, because this big company is using it. And then, you know, 18 months later, the company announces actually technology A totally didn't work out for us. And we're throwing it all away and rewriting in, you know, this other technology for performance. Still, there's a lot of residual interest in technology A, and there isn't as much like going back and being like, well, hang on a sec. Maybe this wasn't a good direction in the first place. Yeah, kind of. It all feels like like experiment actually on users, like how much can users take without starting complaining, like how, how much <laughs> yeah. slower we can all make our software. And as long as there is no real competition, like, yeah, you can do it pretty all the way. Like there's no alternative to Slack, right? And so they, they can do whatever they want, basically, yeah. performance-wise. Now, there is an opposite direction, which I definitely have been guilty of since I, I sort of been bitten by the performance bug like a few years ago. And I'm like, yeah, I want everything to run really, really fast. There was a moment where I was like, okay, I think I have a problem, which is I was getting really frustrated about the fact that this is so dumb. But so command line arguments in Rust the way that they work is you sort of, there's only one way to get command line arguments in Rust, which is uh, you sort of iterate through them and it gives you these strings that have already been sort of turned into UTF-8, kind of, there's some like weird distinctions behind the scenes. And then later on, of course, if I am doing something with those command line arguments, like reading a file from the file system based on one of the files that you passed in, I'm going to convert from the in-memory representation I have of that, so like UTF-8 or whatever, uh, into whatever the OS wants. Mm -hmm. So in the case of Windows, What's happening is Windows uses UTF-16. And so they have a UTF-16 string that's getting passed into my app. And then Rust is converting that from UTF-16 to UTF-8 so that I can operate on it. 
And all I'm going to do is say like, oh, well, this is just the file name. So I'm just going to turn around and pass that right back to Windows, at which point it gets once again converted to UTF-16. And this is really bothering me. I'm like, come on, it's coming in as UTF-16. I want to call the Windows File System API, which expects it at UTF-16. And there's no possible way in Rust to do that without converting to UTF-8 in between. And, you know, for really low level language, this was really bothering me. And like, I even asked on like the Rust uh, discourse, you know, hey, is there any way to do this? And it seems like the answer is no. What I was saying is there is some built in way to accept command line arguments. It's not a library, nothing like that. Or so Rust standard library has a way of doing this. And unfortunately, Rust doesn't. So like in C, for example, you can just write int main and then the arguments like argc and argv Mm -hmm. come in and Mm -hmm. you just get those on the stack. You actually cannot do that in Rust. Okay, There's no way to say, like, just give me a pointer to these things and I'll do it myself. You, you don't even have that option. Okay. There is a, some horrible hack that's technically undefined behavior, but in practice today happens to work the way you want it to, but I don't want to rely on that, obviously. But the thing is, I mean, at the end of the day, I know that we're talking about one, maybe two or three command line arguments like this. This is going to be a couple of microseconds yeah. going back and forth. If we're doing UTF-8 to UTF-16 on like, you know, a, a megabyte of, of data, that's one thing. But this is just nothing. And I was like, all right, I guess there's there's some point and I found it where I'm like, my instinct to try to performance optimize everything has like definitely taken me farther than is like actually useful to end users. I just recently was talking to somebody about Rust types for strings where like it has like 10 types for different occasions like you know OS string or whatever i think this is where i draw the line i think it's too much maybe it's detail you most of the times don't really care about even though it exists like it represents some reality but it's probably unimportant for most of the programs you're going to write and then you're saying me so even though rust actually cares about it and has all the ways to deal with it it's you still cannot do it where you want to so like, it's still, it still <laughs> yeah. gets in their way. Okay, yeah, well. And to be fair, like generally speaking in Rust, this is, this is a really unusual experience for me in Rust. Almost always there's some way to get the, like, the fastest thing if you're you know, willing to accept certain trade-offs. But I think something that's definitely changed about me compared to earlier in my career is that I actually am thinking about these things. And even if sometimes I do go overboard and maybe I catch myself, maybe I don't, I think that's actually much healthier than the alternative, which I think earlier in my career, I would have said the opposite. I'd be like, oh, no, it's like it's bad to waste time on thinking about performance stuff that's not going to matter. But I think if you don't think about this stuff, then you just end up with, by default, slow software. And Mm -hmm. the only way to not end up with slow software is to actually be thinking about it and maybe coming to the conclusion, okay, I shouldn't spend time optimizing this or I shouldn't, you know, or this is going to be premature optimization. There's the old horribly misquoted Donald Knuth quote. <laughs> That's such a funny example because of the like premature optimization is the root of all evil. Because if you just like zoom out and you get the whole paragraph that that's a part of, it's like really clear that he's just talking about tiny micro optimizations, like the stuff I was just talking about. Yeah. And actually, his macro point is like, no, you should always be thinking about performance. You just like shouldn't go through and do the like really hand fine tuning stuff because you might end up making a bigger change that ends up throwing all that away anyway. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. And speaking of performance as well, it was this month basically I released a parser for Toml for closure, like Tom obvious markup language. Uh-huh. And did that because a library for that exists in closure, but it was written with Instaparse, which is like 
pretty nice library for building your own parsers. And it's like you basically pass grammar in and it parses whatever you want. Very nice, very nice. But, but it was kind of it was kind of slow because like I generated like like twenty kilobytes uh, TOML file for that describes my website, and it took like six hundred milliseconds to parse it. And I'm like something is wrong here. And I like yeah. optimized it into zero point three milliseconds and like two thousand nice. times faster. Uh, but I had <laughs> I had to go I had to go to Java though. Uh, yeah, well, yeah, but uh, that's like convenient things. They not always produce like the best results. It was like convenient for developer, but like then, like for all the users, it was really not. Yeah, and I, I wish I think parsing is actually a cool example of that because I wish that there were more domains where we had a good path to doing a performance-oriented rewrite without necessarily breaking all the use cases. Like Toml is a good example of this because it's like okay, I'm assuming there's a spec for Toml, or if yeah. there's not a spec, then there's at least understood how to how to do that. So you can make a library that does the same job, serves the same purpose as this other library, except it's much faster. And people have a really obvious path to switch to that. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, comparing that to like the Electron example, it's a lot harder to do that because you can't just say like, oh, I'll make a much faster alternative to Electron that everyone can just switch to because there's so many assumptions about the underlying layers and layers of documentification and de-documentification, et cetera, that are baked into Electron that applications are going to rely on that it's just really hard to switch, mm -hmm. even if you do make uh, something that's, that's actually much more performant. Which is really unfortunate. I, I wish that was something that I, I think that maybe is part of or, or could become part of people being more aware of performance and more thinking about performance is just trying to make decisions like design decisions in their APIs when you don't have like a spec or something like that, where it's like, let me think about like if I'm choosing to cut a corner on performance right now and make this thing a little bit slower just so I can get it out the door faster and make, you know, whatever, deal with my, my trade-offs on a project level at least I'm setting myself up for a future for somebody else or myself to come back in and make it a lot faster without breaking everybody. Yeah, yeah, it's it's good to at least think about there has to be this path to upgrade because if it's like a web API, yeah, you can change implementation to whatever you want. If it's a parser with like clearly defined spec as well, you can change it. But if it's like, you know, some software library that actually exposes primitives that cannot possibly be optimized yeah you you're done like nothing can be done or you can just <laughs> right. throw everything away and start again yeah that's that's, that's, that's yeah it's kind of your only option yeah yeah at, the, at that stage one of the things that i think about with this is when you get down to the sort of graphics card level like for uis in particular like okay well there's these really low level graphics primitives that you know the shader languages understand for example and you can kind of use that as like a common thing to say okay well as long as the UI library that I'm making only depends on those things, then it's, you know, it, it works across, you know, this, that, and the other operating system, and it can be sort of generic. And even if I'm using a library wrapper around that for now, I can upgrade it in the future. But then you get into questions like accessibility, which is really hard to do if you're just going straight to the graphics card, because every operating system does that differently. There's an open question as to like, do you even want to use the operating systems uh, accessibility features? Or in some cases, do you want to roll your own? It's an example of where there's been so much work put into doing that correctly for, or, or at least in a way that like can be done correctly for browsers that you know, something like Electron just has a big advantage that you know, it gets to sort of have all that stuff included. And I know that the reason that Electron, is, like the main reason that Electron is successful, I think, is just familiarity because so many people are used to building for browsers and, and the learning curve is low. Like you said, prioritizing developers over end users. Mm. 
But I think there's also a part of that, which is that there's a set of problems in that domain of UIs that there's just kind of a gap where there isn't like a really obvious, oh, I'll just, if I want to do accessibility across native apps, I'll just do it this way and I'll be all set. I know there's like accessibility kit, I think is is the one that I've heard of that uh, is trying to sort of unify those, but mm. it seems like a bit of an unsolved problem outside of browsers. Oh, no, wait, 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 wait. I think accessibility is kind of solved on OS level. No, like it's different for every OS, but it's like you know, Mac OS apps, for example, native apps, they are accessible, no? Uh, okay, sure. So yeah, what I mean is like if you're trying to make one code base that runs on multiple OSs. Yeah, exactly, exactly, exactly. So, so like basically, if you look at the situation, so what I think it looks like is that browser is actually competing with OS interfaces. So like Mac OS, Windows API, right? These are like also application programming interfaces. They like it's a product that should be appealing to developers. Like, look, you can build applications this way. We've, we've thought of that. We've thought of that. Like, please use us. And the, then browser comes and basically what it does, it does the same thing, but better. And yeah, like historical artifact, it also runs on all operating systems. And this is also a huge factor for sure. But it also like unifies all the stuff like file system access, network access and stuff like that. Even right now, we are recording in, in Chrome, right? And it does microphone handling, camera handling, all that. Yeah, and it does it in, in a better and more approachable way because like setting up, I don't know, accessing a microphone on Windows, it's probably like <laughs> two screens of C++ <laughs> or something like that. And it's crazy to, to, to think people will use that. So basically, it feel, filled the niche that was not taken, basically like nice file system APIs to work with all the devices. And it's it's only fire that wins because like it has no real competition. Yeah. Now I but having said that, I think that like in my mind, there's certain use cases that browsers are really great for. And actually this podcasting app they're using, this is Zencaster, if anyone's listening is wondering. <laughs> uh it's something that I think is a really good example of a really nice use case for browsers, which is if I want to record a podcast with somebody, I all I have to do is send them one link and that's really all they need. They don't need to download and install anything. They just visit the link and all the software is there running. It also you know, will prompt them before giving permission to access the microphone and camera, which is the behavior that I want as an end user. And it's fast enough. Like we're not experiencing any latency or yeah. you know, drop frames or anything. So all of that seems like cool. Like there's, you know, you could make a de- native desktop app for this, but then you have to download it. You have to install it. You have to maybe uninstall it when you're done. You don't want it anymore because you're just doing it for this one episode. So all of those things make a lot of sense to me as a use case for this. But then I look at something like, I mean, the, the canonical example, I think, is like a music player. It's like, okay, I, I like having a music player as a desktop app. Cool. But I remember Winamp from, you know, a, a long time ago, back in the day, like that was when I was first getting into music that was not on a CD or a, or a tape or whatever. Like MP3s were, were kind of a new thing and everybody was sharing MP3s using Winamp. And it was just this tiny little, you know, like like three megabyte or something. Like it's just microscopic application. And I do remember, though, something that I heard about but didn't personally experience. Like, I never customized my Winamp, but I I knew people who would put all these plugins in and then it would become really slow, which actually I think is kind of funny. But, like, if you didn't put any plugins in it, then it was was nice and fast. You could just leave it on in the background, which is what I always did. But even on, like, a 133 megahertz, you know, single-core processor, like, I could just run Winamp in the background and be fine. Whereas nowadays, it's like, if you took a modern music player and tried to run it on a 133 megahertz single-core machine, it would just... Even if that's all you were doing, it was still probably played sound in a, like a choppy, <laughs> horrible way because there's just so much else going on just to render the UI Chrome. 
which doesn't seem necessary to me. Like, I, if I want it to be a desktop application anyway, why are we doing all these browser things? You know, there's the, I think uh, one of the things you mentioned in the blog post was if you have a music player that's running an electron, you have in that process a Xbox 360 controller driver. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> like, yeah. Like, there that you can't, yeah. right. It's like, that's just, that's just waste. But yeah, it, it's also understandable at the same time because if I'm making a music player and I'm a company that makes a music player, I probably don't want to pay people to make one for macOS and make one for Windows and make one for iOS and make one for Android. I'd prefer to just have, if I can get away with it, like one code base for all those different platforms. And then the only differences between them are like layout changes and stuff like that. Yeah, exactly. That's uh, basically the, my, my idea of Humble UI is kind of like that. I want it to be cross-platform. So it doesn't go into native um, widgets at all. Like we render everything ourselves, like Flutter does. Yeah, it's going to be cross-platform because I think yeah, that's 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 like the stuff that you have to write the exact, basically the same program three different times in three different ways to do the same stuff. It's like it's crazy. Like it's it's not normal. Right. Like we used to that situation, but it's 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 not okay. Yeah, it shouldn't be that way. So yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think that sort of focus on like wanting to get and like that is something that is good for developers but not necessarily for end users end users don't necessarily care they're just like i'm using it on this device in this operating system i want it to feel nice but at the same time yeah it definitely seems like it's a problem that should be able to be solved in a better way and it's frustrating that the thing that has one has all these performance downsides Mm -hmm. yeah well yeah (laughs) <laughs> the world we're in at least we have yeah yeah i don't know maybe maybe if electron didn't exist companies would try better i guess there was like several situations when a company that had like perfectly nice native app decided to switch to electron you know like i think one password comes to mind i think they used to have native apps and like and then, then you like see look at them and like they have like 2000 developers and like i can't believe you can't make 2000 developers to make three apps at the same time like i, <laughs> I can't believe you can't do it what are you like saving that yeah that that is also something that i admittedly i don't have firsthand experience doing this so i, I i'm just genuinely curious you like, mean you mean writing native apps no no I, I mean like when you have a development team that large and like a feature set or like a number of products that you're shipping that's that small i just i don't understand what does the roadmap look like? How are that many people delivering what appears to me as an end user to be such little, you know, delta in functionality, especially when I think about other apps where I'm like, I know for a fact that 1.5 people are working on this. And it seems like they have like a similar pace of shipping new features. And I understand that to some extent you, as like a code base gets bigger and a company gets more established, part of what's going into that is just that, they're being a lot more deliberate about releases. They're checking things a lot more carefully. And so everything slows down because they really want to avoid regressions and like bad user experience, you know, when they ship something new, like how successful that is, I guess. Yeah. Um, it feels like regressions are also pretty common, <laughs> even under those development sure. models. Yeah, it's not. I think, well, I think that it all comes down to complexity. They accumulate complexity much faster and then it starts getting slower and so on and if you're a small team you just uh, don't have as much complexity so you can deliver faster work with less people so it's kind of yeah same i guess i have heard a really interesting point made recently um just by coincidence this actually uh, came up pretty recently in my youtube recommendations this talk Mm -hmm. that i I watched and i already forgot the title of it even though (laughs) (laughs) Uh, but it was it was a talk from jonathan blow who made a couple of like famous uh, video games like braid and the witness and 
And the talk was about a programming language that he was working on uh, for like game development. But the uh, the title was something along the lines of like making game development less terrible. But actually, he starts off kind of motivating the talk by talking about some of the same kinds of things that, that you were talking about in this blog post. He gave a really funny example of Photoshop where uh, he like double clicks on a file. He counts out loud. It takes like seven seconds before it actually has the image up and is able to edit it. And then he makes the point. He's like, now let's watch this again. And the first thing that happens like while you're waiting for that to load is it shows a splash screen of like Adobe Photoshop. Yeah. And the photo that it's showing for the splash screen is like similar in like resolution and complexity to the photo he's trying to load. He's like, so clearly it's capable of loading a photo instantly. It's just not yeah, the one yeah. I actually care yeah. about. <laughs> yeah. And that's also another example of like languages alone aren't a sufficient solution to this because of course Photoshop's all written in C++. So, you know, they certainly could be like, yeah. I, don't, I don't know what all they're doing there, but they, they could be doing something different to make it load faster. Um, yeah. yeah, that's true, that's true. But the, the point that he made that I thought was really interesting was about sort of what we consider to be software best practices. And the observation was something along the lines of there's been a lot of advice that goes around in the programming world that if you look at the track record of that advice, it doesn't seem to be that good, but that doesn't make us look back and say, Oh, you know, maybe the person who gave us this advice was not like really giving us good advice. Mm -hmm. And also it doesn't, lead us to say, or, or to be more skeptical of advice, especially com advice coming from people who have basically not shipped what we would consider to be impressive software. Are there like examples of this advice? Can you give an example? I don't think he gave like a specific example, but I, I know that like Casey Muratori, who's talked about similar things. Yeah, I think they're, they're, they're friends or something like this. They talk about I think, similar I think things. he was talking about clean code. Mm -hmm. he, did a, he did a blog post about that. And basically like, you know, when... If you look at the specific recommendations that Clean Code the book uh, from Robert Martin from however many years ago, yeah. if you look at the specific recommendations that it makes, Casey's point was, A, it's not clear that these actually produce better code at all. Maybe it does, maybe it doesn't, but there's really no like good evidence that this is actually going to make your code base better. And B, these are pretty much objectively horrible for performance. So he's like, if it's not clear that there's a benefit and it seems to be really obviously bad for performance. Like, why don't we stop recommending that people do this? And he apparently later had a debate with Robert Martin, which was interesting. It, <laughs> it didn't seem like either of them convinced the other one. <laughs> but, uh, or at least not completely. But I do think that's a, that there's, there's a broader good point. And so one example that comes to mind is John Carmack is somebody who I think of as a very productive programmer who has a long track record of shipping really impressive software. And that's both as an individual and also as somebody who's led entire teams of programmers. Like earlier in his career, he's kind of like, you know, solo developer who, yeah. who made like Quake and, and Doom and Wolfenstein and all these like groundbreaking technological achievements. But then later on, he went on to ship like much bigger, like AAA games. And like he was, you know, a technical lead on those projects and then went to Facebook or now Meta and, and did like Oculus and so forth. And it, it seems like a consistent thread there is that like when he's involved with the project, they ship really technically impressive user-friendly stuff. It's not too slow. It's not too buggy. It's like it's pretty high quality software generally. And so that's somebody who I'm like, okay, I think if this guy wants to offer advice on how to do software well, I have good reason to believe that, you know, like, yeah, I would like to get the same kind of results uh -huh, that he does. Uh -huh, uh -huh. But a lot of the advice that goes around if i look at like who it's coming from and i ask the question what reason do i have to believe that this person actually knows how to get good outcomes in terms of software that is user-friendly and runs sufficiently fast and so forth and 
almost always the answer is like basically none. It's like they're a consultant for companies that make software that I'm not very impressed by or maybe think is like really slow and bloated and, and don't want to use it. Yeah, I actually have something to say on, on this topic. So I used to do a talk. I think all these instances were in Russian. I never get to write a blog post in English or present in English. So there was a paper called Skill Acquisition. Uh, I don't remember exactly the name, who, who wrote it. But basically the idea was how people like in all areas like of human skill or knowledge like acquire skills, how they become good. Basically, it's not about software even. So like the examples could be like a, a chess player or airplane plane pilot or whatever, right? And it looks like the pattern in which they, they acquire the skill is kind of similar for whatever skill it is. And uh, the authors identified four or five levels of different, basically stages, how you go, go up. And you start as novice when you don't know anything at all and you're just trying to do something done. Then you go to like, uh, I don't know, remember, the third level is advanced, then you get to expert. And I think there's fifth level, like grandmaster or whatever. <laughs> but, 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 sure. Yeah, yeah. I don't, uh, it was a long time ago, but it's still relevant. And the paper is like, I guess, from 60s or something like that. Yeah. And the idea was this each level requires different approach to how they teach, how they acquire knowledge, and how they operate. Basically, the brain works differently. For example, like expert or grandmaster chess players, they don't think at all in the ways like normal chess players do. Like they, they think in, they can't even explain how they think, basically. Like, it just happens to them. And, like, if you ask them, how do you decide on this move? Like, I don't know. Like, <laughs> uh, it's yeah. hard to pass. Yeah. And so uh, the point that is relevant to, to this discussion is that novice, well, not players, like programmers, for example, right? The, the people who just get into programming, they need kind of a different sort of advice that um, experienced, advanced, like, or expert play, uh, uh, specialists do. And it must, like the, the idea was, it must be as concrete as possible, uh, even at expense for sometimes being wrong. For example, like mm. always make functions no longer than 10 lines of code. It's obviously mm. wrong advice. You, you shouldn't do that. But if <laughs> yes. you're just starting, it's relevant to you. It helps you a little bit. Like, because you, like, there is like infinite uh, field of possibilities of what you can write in this text file. And you don't even know what, what you should try first, right? But once you get into some basically senior level programmer, which is like level three, basically, the first level actually where you can deliver some value, you deliver more value than you take resources from your team for to teach you. This advice becomes wrong because you can start seeing nuances when, when it's better to write functions that like more than 10 lines wrong and so on. And, and my personal idea from this concept was actually that like a lot of problem in our field is because when people talk to each other, they don't realize that different books or materials intended to different levels. So, for example, if you show this clean code to Casey Moratori or John Carmack, they would say it's bullshit because it is for them, right? But if you show it to like somebody who just starts, it's a good book probably. Like they, they can get something from it. They can do, try stuff and so on. It doesn't really matter what you try as long as you like just start in the field. But 
if you stick long enough with the advice that Bob Martin gives you, like, uh, <laughs> that's probably bad. Like, yeah, if you like have <laughs> five years of experience and you still write by clean code, yeah, you're probably in trouble. And the problem is here, people tend to believe like, yeah, advice when it's no longer relevant to them. So yeah, something like that. Yeah, I, that's a really good point about different levels needing different teaching tools. So two things I wonder about this. One is I wonder if we could be more explicit about this is kind of training wheels advice. This is not something that you're going to want to do long term. But for right now, this is something you should just do as a learning technique. And maybe don't say, hey, you should keep your lines, your functions to under 10 lines. But you should say, try this out. And it will help you like see that like get in the habit of looking for ways to break down your functions. Try a limit, making a rule for yourself of having functions be more than no more than 10 lines and just see what you kind of observe as you're doing that. Like, where does it feel natural to break these things up? What do you learn in the course of doing that? As opposed to saying, this is what, you know, clean code or good code or whatever is, is, is code that has this limitation put on it. And then another thing that I wonder is, I wonder if we've done a good enough job as an industry around trying to figure out what are the pieces of advice we should tell people like yeah i mean that is one thing you could tell people is you know constrain your functions so you don't have you know one gigantic mega function that just does absolutely everything and which is really hard to change later or is it that we should focus on some subset of the like how do you tell people how to make things that are in a way that's going to be less hard to change later like maybe we i think we tend to think of like coupling as as a more intermediate or advanced concept maybe we should try to teach that as a beginner concept and say like if if this thing depends on this those things are coupled. Instead of saying, try to keep your functions under 10 lines, say, try to, you know, minimize coupling. And maybe they're going to overdo it as a beginner. They're going to like, you know, split it into a gazillion functions, all of which are, you know, like maybe just make a big mess. But I wonder if the mess that they might make doing that might be better than the mess that they get themselves into with the current set of advice. Uh, it's, It's a good question. It's a good question. I'm not sure, but maybe. I think also that um, maybe what you try at, at your first few years like couple of years doesn't really matter that much i guess as, <laughs> the more you experience the better like you know i think in go the game go they have a saying like lose the first thousand games as fast as possible or something like that <laughs> like yeah, yeah yeah another thing about this i have to say is i know you have pretty popular twitter as well so maybe you can relate but I feel like if you just give advice on the internet, people tend to believe it. Like, no matter the advice, like, it's a, it's a content that goes, like, very viral easily. I, like, I don't want to give bad advice. So I try to give good advice. But if I wanted to become popular, I would just start give out bad advice, probably, and be much more popular. I don't know how that works. But, like, yeah, that's what I, at least my experience tells me from, like, having social network account. Yeah, I think definitely there's an appetite to improve. Like people want to hear advice because they want to, you know, learn ways to get better. And I think uh, there's unfortunately more of an appetite to learn and, and to improve than there is necessarily skepticism around pieces of advice yes, that are yeah, exactly. uh, being given. Exactly. Yeah, I, I will say, unfortunately, most of the skepticism I see tends to look like it's of the form I don't like your conclusion or I don't like this piece of advice. So I'm going to work backwards to try and figure out what's wrong with it so that I don't have to do it or don't feel obliged to do it. As opposed to, oh, this sounds really appealing and really tempting for me. Hang on. Let me try to analyze this critically and see if this actually makes sense or if it's just like maybe this person's just saying this and, you know, it it sounds good. But actually, if I do this, it, it will make my, you know, program worse. I think one thing that 
it's not it's not so much advice, but it is something that I see as a pattern that is something that I, I wish we as an industry could change, which is that a lot of advice for how to do things or how to do things the right way seems to have the general shape of here are some extra layers you can put on things or here's some more stuff you can do in order to make your software better or more future proof or whatever. And I wish that instead it was the opposite, where the default was like, hey, here's some ways you can do more with less. Here's some ways you can cut things out of your software to make it better uh-huh, and easier uh-huh. to maintain. And and like oftentimes when people are talking about that, unfortunately, usually what they're talking about, or it seems to be that what they're talking about is quote unquote boilerplate. And they say like, oh, you can make your software shorter by replacing these 10 lines with these three lines, which do a huge amount of magic that's going to bite you later. But I won't mention that part. Yeah, you know, yeah. that's that's not what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is instead of having this, you know, I mean, the the ultimate like classic cheesy example of this is like the very real actual Java class that exists in a popular Java framework, which is abstract singleton factory proxy bean. <laughs> like that's the name of the class and you can just tell just from the name it's like okay there's a lot of stuff going on here where i'm very skeptical that every single one of those things is like a good idea and probably almost none of them are like there's some yeah. much more straightforward way you could implement whatever you're doing without needing to go to that level but in order to backtrack how do we get to abstract singleton factory proxy bean i think it's a lot of advice or supposed best practices along the way that encourage you to like, oh, we'll just add this one more thing, just add this one more thing, and then your software will be better and, and easier to maintain. I think this is like, you, you became aware of this, like the more experienced you are, but I tend to only value the advice now that is where you can see, do this because of why, do X because of Y. And if the Y is pretty concrete and explainable and I can understand it. Yeah, I, I could probably consider that advice. But uh, if somebody says, like, do this and it will be better, like, this is not an advice. Like, if you cannot explain <laughs> why is it going to be better, like, no, I don't believe you. And one example oh, of yeah. this I have, well, there's, like, long-standing debate about, like, dynamic versus static typing, right? And there is a guy, Gary Bernard, execute software and uh, destroy of software, I think, conference, his conference was. Yeah, and, and he is writing um, uh, like a course or whatever uh, in JavaScript, in TypeScript even, I think. And he has very practical approach to this typing thing. So he's like, he has a series of t- tweets when he goes like, so we use typing. Typing goes from here, like from database, we type everything and we go to the end. And then when we change the one field somewhere, we actually see our test filing, failing and an actual lesson is broke. So we can track all that through the typing type, type systems. And they like regularly check that, I guess, in, I don't know how regular, but like not probably automated, but they can see the benefit of type system, the type system gives them. Like it's practical, tangible benefits they can feel. And that is like kind of, yeah, yeah, I understand that. But when somebody such says, yeah, classes are obviously better. I don't know. I'm not sure. (laughs) There is no like paper on that. So Yeah, and I actually think like there's a definite challenge to trying to articulate clearly with concrete examples, like something that you sort of intuitively feel is like right and good and whatever. And I think static and dynamic is like kind of the classic example of that. I've definitely tried to get more and more specific about that. And, and so I recognize that it's, it's yeah, definitely Yeah, you're, you're also like was the huge advocate for typing, typing right? No runtime errors. Like, yeah, yeah, I remember that. 
Yeah, totally. I mean, and like, you know, that, that was a concrete benefit that I mean, yeah, we, yeah, we did sure, eventually sure. hit one. It was like, like two years in, we got our first runtime exception at no rate egg, uh, with our, with our Elm code, which was like, I remember like the guy who DM'd me, he's like, Hey, I'm seeing this. Like he was, he's like uh junior. This was like his first programming uh-huh. job. And he's like, I'm seeing this weird thing in the log. I don't know what I'm seeing. Like, what does this mean? Can you help me understand this? I was like, Oh my God, you found the first runtime exception. <laughs> he's like, what? That's, but that's never happened. I was like, no, it, it still can't happen. It yeah, just yeah, hasn't yeah. happened until yeah, now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, like that's that's a pretty easy one to articulate. Although I honestly like it actually got a lot easier to explain that benefit to people after I could show on the graph that like we'd actually seen some of them because before that a lot of people just didn't believe me. Uh-huh. They'd just be like, your error reporting software yeah. is not working yeah, or something. Yeah. Like <laughs> there's like there's some other explanation. Exactly. That's a concrete benefit that you can easily articulate once it's like, well, we've got two here and that, that same time period we've had sixty thousand JavaScript errors uh-huh. from you know uh-huh. Our, uh-huh. Our, our our legacy code. But having said that, I mean even if you do kind of get into the concrete benefits, there's still an interesting debate that can and should like result from that, which is like, okay, these are the concrete benefits. What are the costs? Because it's also yeah. very easy to say, here are these concrete benefits, and then either not talk about the costs or not even be aware of the costs in a lot of cases. It's sure. like you just get so into something and you don't you stop seeing the the drawbacks because you just internalize them. That's another big problem I see happening. Yeah, 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 yeah. And sometimes as you said, like sometimes even you try to articulate uh, the benefits of the way you're doing software. Uh, there's also a good moment there. Sometimes you try and you can't, and you try a couple of times and you realize you can't, and then you realize it's your personal preference. It's not really the best way to do things. You just like it that way. It probably doesn't matter, like tabs versus spaces. Like, yeah, and either way, but yeah, <laughs> there could be no argument about that. That's another thing I really wish culturally that we would get more on board with is just is like just having it be okay to say like this is my preference mm-hmm. and like because. Mm-hmm. Programmers have preferences. It's fine. It's it's not like you need to be like, no, my way is better. It's the best. <laughs> Your way is worse. You could just be like, well, this is a way that I like. And, you know, certainly there are some things that are in the category of you're like, no, I think this is just better. This is a better way to do it. And it's fine to advocate for that. So, yeah, I, I just wish that it was culturally okay to say, I have this personal preference. It's not like the the way that everyone should do this and have everybody be kind of okay with that. But you know why why it's not that way, right? Because like when you say this is the only way it generates more clicks. That's a good point. That's a good point. Because a lot of people are interested in getting clicks and, you know, saying things that are controversial or like inflammatory with like not like not not usefully controversial or just, you know, saying something that they think the goal is to get people to engage with what they're saying. That incentive just causes us to question all like all, all these things. But unfortunately, it doesn't seem to call into question as often as it should things like best practices, right? That's that's unfortunately something that doesn't seem to get called into question as often as I wish it were. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We need to be skeptical for sure. Yeah. It's like it's 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 a basis of like engineering, right? Like to to calculate things, to be skeptical, to like to think things through. And it almost never happens in software. Basically as you said, like people just try random stuff and like a few months down the road they're like, oh, this database was not fast enough for us. Like we should change. There are ways like you could know that in advance. Like you can run experiments basically. This is the area where I wish our like our field were more like engineering and less like, I don't know, pop culture or whatever it is. <laughs> well, I don't know if you've seen uh Hillel Wayne did a really cool article about talking to traditional engineers like people who build bridges or buildings or like yeah, yeah, yeah. geoengineering and stuff uh, that was definitely surprising to me how many 
like how much overlap there, there turned out to be uh, and like how many uh, things that people said are not unique to the software engineering world, much as we might <laughs> like them to be. <laughs> but hey, at the end of the day, it is it is nice that uh, that we have the ability to sort of make our own stuff, like make our own tools. And um, and I really appreciate that, uh, you know, like you're able to like go and build something like the way that you want it with like the performance characteristics that you want, et cetera. And I think that's uh, that's definitely like an underrated approach and also like it's just cool to hear about like you found a way to make that work for you yeah yeah it's it's actually yeah it, this is one one of the ways yeah to deal with what's going around you yeah build stuff that you want i also started like i, I actually have a friend here who is kind of teached me that a little bit like because like a few times i complained about something he says like you can fix that like yeah you can write an application that does it better like and and sometimes, like, when they tell it about Linux, for example, like, oh, you don't like Linux, you can p- always send a patch. Like, yeah, this is not realistic. But this case is more realistic. Like, it's small annoyance that I have, like, I can write a browser extension or a plugin for my editor uh, that actually solves that. And, yeah, I start apply it and applying it more and more, and it kind of works. Yeah, it's, we can do crazy things for ourselves. Automate our lives, like, write s- simple scripts. It works. It's also enjoyable as well. Nice. That's awesome. Well, hey, thanks so much for talking to me about all this. This is a, yeah, it's, it's, it's a really interesting, like really deep topic and kind of gets to the like, you know, how, how can we make software broadly much better in the future? And yeah, I appreciate your perspective on this. Thanks for talking to me about it. Thanks for inviting me. It was a blast. Yeah, I enjoyed it a lot. 